Hey everybody, welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 7. Today's episode features my conversation with Anthony Gadziba of Villanova University. Tony and I had the opportunity to sit down and talk at the recent College Theology Society's annual convention. In that conversation, we talk about Tony's love of music and how it shapes his understanding of theology and spirituality. Uh, We talk about how theology is like doing stand-up and why fundamental theology needs to deal with television and pop culture. Please let us know what you think in the comments on iTunes or on the blog, and thank you so much for listening. So today I'm here with Professor Anthony Gadziba, who is a professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thanks for inviting me. This is really great. When I was putting together this podcast over the last few months, you're actually one of the people I really wanted to talk to because I'm, I'm a big fan. So this is exciting for me. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't take it to be too much buildup, I guess. But the first thing we like to talk about in this podcast or ask about is kind of how did you become a theologian? How did you get into doing theology? What drew you in or experiences or, or people that kind of brought you into to working in theology? I've had to think about this the last couple of days because I knew this was where we were going to start. And I, I, I can't say grad school. I can't say undergrad. I've got to say, look, I was an older boy. Mm. And, you know, my, in my generation, that way of belonging to the church was hugely important. Mm-hmm. And when I got to I – I was in the seminary, too. Okay. So I, I, did a, I did a year at Temple. I was majoring in French. I was going to teach English in France. <laughs> and then just – just felt the call. Mm-hmm. But when I went in, I wasn't thinking about being a theologian. In fact, we all had to be philosophy majors as undergraduates. Sure. And I was just consumed by philosophy. Mm. And I was lucky enough to have professors. They had been trained in Rome, which means they had been trained in either a more up-to-date version of Thomas. This was the 70s. Mm-hmm. Man, I really am old. I feel like I'm 120 years old sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so some of these guys had just gotten back from Rome uh, after Vatican II. Mm. So the manuals were out, mm-hmm. and everybody had to kind of knit together their own, their own curriculum. So these guys, some of these guys had been trained in, in a more up-to-date Thomism, and I had one professor, Father Fred Helderser, God rest his soul. Helderser was a Heideggerian. I couldn't believe it <laughs> when he started <laughs> teaching stuff. And he wrote his dissertation, believe it or not, on Sartre at the Angelicum in Rome. Hmm. But he was told by his director he had to include a chapter on Thomas, which I always thought was hilarious. <laughs> But it was like start- an appendix? Or? Well, no, it had to be like right in the middle of the <laughs> dissertation somewhere. And that influence of continental philosophy, especially phenomenology, that I was reading mm-hmm. uh, toward the end of my undergraduate years in the seminary, had a huge influence mm-hmm. on me. A huge influence to the point that I, w- I, I wanted to pursue an MA in philosophy. Some people from, uh, I went to St. Charles in Philadelphia, which okay. in the 70s was very mainstream, very middle of the road. And some people were sent to Villanova to study for an MA in philosophy. So I, I talked my way into that program and met two professors there who also had immense influence on me. Uh, Tom Bush, who, who taught uh, French phenomenology and existentialism. Mm-hmm. The course I did with him on Merleau-Ponty was just hugely influential. Mm. And Jack Pudo. Mm. And I did my Husserl and Heidegger with Jack. And Jack's a great friend. So I knew Jack before Jack went crazy, before he met Derrida and changed everything, and Jack was still Heideggerian. But I will say, at the end of my undergraduate year, so i, I got to have the story a little bit. Sure, sure. I, I felt there's that kind of emptiness that, I mean, you're, you're living your life up in your own head. Right. And I couldn't wait to graduate and go up to the theologate. Okay. 
And it was Bible that grabbed me, but because I didn't have the classical languages mm -hmm. as, as deeply as I needed them. You know, I didn't, I didn't have, have Greek at my command or anything like that. But I will say, because of my philosophical bent, systematics immediately appealed to me. Mm -hmm. and I, just, I just dove right in. But I also dove into spirituality. So along with that, I was reading, I guess because of the Heidegger connection, like Eckhart. Sure. But then if you read Eckhart, you start reading Pseudo-Dionysius. And if you read Pseudo-Dionysius, you start reading the Desert Fathers. And if you read the Desert Fathers, you start reading all these other things, right? So my background when I finished, I mean, I left the seminary in the diaconate. Mm -hmm. I left and I'm no longer, you know, I was, as they said, reduced to the lay state. <laughs> so so I, have a, I have a form that tells me that, right? And, um, Keeps you from getting full of your That's health. right. That's right. <laughs> So, and so I was out for, uh, for after I left, I, I worked for a couple of years. I taught high school, mm -hmm. but I just felt that pull. I needed, I needed a life of the mind again. I needed the intellectual life. Mm -hmm. So I actually went to Duquesne to start a philosophy PhD because they had been the center for phenomenology in this country. Mm -hmm. But by the time I got to Duquesne in the late 70s, that had pretty much dissipated. Not completely, because, for example, John Salas was there as the chair, and, and I had a course with Salas called Husserl, Heidegger, Derrida, which was great. Heidegger commenting on Husserl, Derrida commenting on Heidegger and Husserl, that kind of you know, sure. uh, uh, triangular kind of conversation. But it just wasn't enough for me. Mm. So I, I left Duquesne, came back, worked for another year, and then applied to Catholic U for, my, um, for a PhD in theology. And the graduate director was Frank Fiorenza. <laughs> and it was just so providential. <laughs> Two neighborhood guys, you know, Frank's from Brooklyn, mm -hmm. Francis just Fiorenza. But I, I, there are like three people in the world, I think, who call him Frank. Yeah. A neighborhood guy from Brooklyn who had studied in Germany, and a neighborhood <laughs> guy from Philadelphia who was like, who knew continental philosophy, and we hit it off like immediately. Mm -hmm. And my first two courses at CUA were Frank's Fundamental Theology Hermeneutics course. It was a Hermeneutics course, not Fundamental Theology. And Bill Hill's course on the Skilbeck's Christ book, okay. Bill the Dominican. And Bill was just phenomenal, but he was also in, in a, kind of the middle stages of Parkinson's. So uh, keeping up with class sometimes was a little difficult for him, but he was, he was just brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I just got sucked into this wonderful world of fundamental theology, yeah. and I kept my systematics interests alive. So mm -hmm. one of my areas of expertise is Christology. Yeah. And that's kind of where, how it all started. And then when I, when I finished, well, while, I was, while I was a student, I was teaching. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't living it in Washington, in D.C. I was commuting back and forth from Philadelphia. So I was teaching two courses in our philosophy department at Villanova and then taking the train down mm -hmm. to take my courses on like Thursdays or Tuesdays or whatever. And then started to teach in our, what was then our religious studies department. Uh, so I was teaching most of the time while I was working on my doctor. So it took me a little longer to finish because I, I just wasn't a professional student like sure. some of my colleagues were. <laughs> but the influence, I would say, of, uh, I mean, I know this sounds strange, of Jack Caputo and, you know, Jack's way of, of his wonderful way of approaching philosophy at that point in the 70s and the early 80s, I guess. And, and both Frank Fiorenza and Beth Johnson, because Beth was teaching there at the mm -hmm. time, too, was just immensely important to me. Mm -hmm. But it was also important to me to go my own way and not be a disciple of anybody. Yeah. Because I realized I had my own approach to these things that none of those three people could share because they, all, they had their own voice. Yeah. In, in what way do you think that you... In what, in what way would you describe that voice in, in comparison or distinction from those or... 
or what, what, what is it that you feel that you're bringing that is, I mean, I, like, I, and I was sort of preparing, I was looking at your interests, I, I mean, it's fundamental theology and a systematic theology and hermeneutics and everything, but there's, there's music and culture and, and like, there's a, there's a lot that you're bringing and I'm sort of wondering maybe how you characterize Yeah, this it. is almost impossible to answer. I mean, <laughs> in, in, in high school, I got interested in Baroque music. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me how or why. I bought a bunch of classical records. I just started listening to them, right? Did you play too? Or? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. And so I bought a, I bought, I bought a copy of Otto Klemperer and the, and the Philharmonia Orchestra are doing the Brandenburg Concertos. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's about as non-stylistically correct as you could get, <laughs> right? And I was just enthralled. I mean, classical music was slow and boring, and this mm-hmm. wasn't, right? So I just started to pursue it more and start to I just buy everything that's by Bach, right? Just mm-hmm. Everything I get my hands on with my limited allowance, right? And, my, <laughs> and later my limited salary, right? But I started to teach myself the recorder because I wanted to learn an authentic Baroque instrument, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, I was passable, right? But that got me into reading scores and reading musicology, and I was trying to learn more German so I could read more musicology. So it's funny, my first contact with with hardball research mm-hmm. is not theology or philosophy. Really? It's musicology, right? Hmm. So, you know, to read the Bach Yarbrough, you know, you got to know some German, right? <laughs> so once I saw how, not just how scholarship worked, but how it also played out in practice, mm-hmm. right? So what musicologists were doing was being taken seriously by younger musicians who are now devoting themselves to what's called, you know, what now is called historically informed performance. Back then it was mm-hmm. called authentic performance. Yeah. Play either original Period instruments. instruments or, and, yeah, right. Yeah. Or copies thereof. So that's uh, th- that's a sensibility I brought to my theological work. You know, a, a really deep respect for, for history mm-hmm. and what history can do. So in my theological training, I'd say both in the seminary and at, at, at CUA, People who are devoted, I guess you could say loosely, the historical critical method for me is absolutely crucial, mm-hmm. right? Which also then plays into my love of Gadamer. Gadamer's whole point of you know how the past influences the present, yeah. but you can only know the past through the present, mm-hmm. right? So that's where the, the the aesthetic piece comes from, and I've actually been doing more work in, in the visual arts lately and stuff like that. Yeah. So that's and and phenomenology helps there too because what do you I mean, Husserl's very intellectualistic. But when I read Merleau-Ponty talking about the lived body mm-hmm. and how the body reveals the world. Yeah. You know. So for this podcast, we're sitting in a classroom, mm-hmm. right, that we would just enter very easily and we know where to sit down and we know where the door is. But if somebody comes in here on crutches in a wheelchair or a wheelchair, it's, it's a minefield, mm-hmm. right? So what's the truth of this room? It's revealed by bodies and their configurations and their constitutions. So it's that insight that also helped me think about the incarnation and discipleship and praxis, right? Mm-hmm. I'd also say my Bible courses, especially New Testament courses, had a major influence on me. We, we, did, a, we did a course on the Gospel of Mark, and at that point, the Theodore Whedon's book on Mark had just been published that talked about you know the disciples' misunderstanding and and and, and how the the gospel is a polemic against the disciples, mm-hmm. and I thought finally the gospel started to make sense. Like they were about something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that just opened up a whole world. So all these things for me get linked together. Right. A real emphasis on experience, and that's why as from early in my career, Skilbex was a huge influence on my thinking because yeah, sure. of the emphasis on experience. 
and that hermeneutical sensibility to to studying it and taking it apart and seeing mm-hmm. where it all lands, right? So that accounts for I think some of the the kind of the, the what looks broad to me. I, I there's a thread there's a that thread. ties it yeah. all together for me. Yeah. 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 yeah, and you can see, or maybe I mean, at least I can see with with students that I've had where there's this relationship between hermeneutics and embodiment that is not at all clear to them at first. Yeah, but I, like, I there's a point early in each semester when I start, I, I tease my students a little bit because within a week, whatever seat they have in the room is their seat for the semester. That's right, That's and right. they won't move, and they won't. It's not that they're consciously thinking about it, but they just do that. And doing experiments where you move students around or you, you, you get, like, your confederate to take their spot, right? Yeah. And, and, and you've disrupted everybody right. at that point. That's right. And it shakes it up. And, and I've had students uh, – I, I taught in this classroom this last year that had, you know, t- like rolling tables and chairs. And so if the previous course had rearranged things for something, I never bothered to change it back. The students would come in and you could see them just – Visibly thrown off by right. by where things discombobulated. Were. They, yeah, they weren't sure where to sit. To do. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and you'd even find then with the like the, just the architecture of the room based on where I am and where they are, whether their back is to me or or they're on the side or, or wherever they are, like it it throws off their their perspective. But just that fact of perspective and the way that they have mm-hmm. one helps them to start wrestling with interpretation and hermeneutics and how how they perform interpretation. Yeah, I see. I think that's crucial. We are we are someone. Who who is is located somewhere and who comes from some some history? Yeah, and for and for theologians not to take that seriously, and I don't know any theologian. There's no theologian that, that I work with or know or read who doesn't take that seriously. Mm-hmm. To not take that seriously is not to is is to I think undermine the process mm-hmm. and and undermine any kind of applicative move from, from go mm-hmm. right. If I can quote Heidegger one more time. All, all the There's, times you want. All right, great. I, I, I have found, I've, I've also taught a, a hermeneutics course for, for, for our honor students. Mm-hmm. And being in time still works. It still has this, it still grabs them. Yeah. And there's that one line, I think it's page 33, <laughs> the top quarter of the page, where Heidegger says, in the Macquarie Robinson translation, where Heidegger says, the question of existence never gets straightened out except through existing itself. Mm-hmm. If that's not a fundamentally theological statement mm-hmm. or, or immediately applicable theology, I don't know what is. Yeah. Right? So you combine that with, or I would combine that with what I learned in that course I just mentioned earlier, the Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. Right? What's discipleship? How do mm-hmm. you find out about it? Mm-hmm. What's it mean to live a Jesus-like life? Mm-hmm. And to this day, when I give talks on this or when I use Mark in class, I point to those two pericopes in chapter 10, 35 to 45, where it's James and John asking Jesus, you know, about, you know, can we sit your right or your left, you know. And, and you would think that the capital D disciples would know what discipleship's about. Mm-hmm. And Mark makes it clear they don't. They think it's about power. Yeah. And of course, Jesus has to school them at the end of that pericope as to what discipleship is, mm-hmm. right? It's service. And then the next pericope is Bartimaeus. So... And, and at the end, Bartimaeus gets up, and the professor I had, the late Father Dan Murray, said, and one of the most important words in this pericope, en te hodo, on the way. In mm-hmm. the last three words, it's 1052, uh, chapter 10, verse 52. Bartimaeus gets up and follows Jesus. And mm-hmm. in Mark's gospel, where are they all going? They're going to Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to die. You've got to follow him all the way. Mm-hmm. Right? So the capital D disciples blow it. 
and the real and the real model of discipleship is Bartimaeus. Yeah. But you've actually got to walk walk with Jesus. You've actually got to live a Jesus-like life. Mm-hmm. Or to know what the that, what the kingdom of God's about, you actually have to live and practice and apply the values of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So I've always thought then that my phenomenological training, but I'd also say my 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 musical leanings, because that's where it's all plotting, you're really, I mean, I don't know if you play an instrument. I, I used to play piano, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you get in the zone. Yeah. And there's some part where the music just takes you over, you know. I played a recorder sonata once with some harpsichords. This is when I was still in the seminary. And the piece was normally just beyond me, and I was always flubbing it. It's one, mm-hmm. it's one, of, the, it's one of the Bach flute sonatas, but it was arranged, it was... Um, transposed for recorder because whose range is a little little different than the flute and all of a sudden we started to play and I felt like I was just on this wave and mm-hmm. I wasn't missing a note and we were just floating yeah and so to be in that zone strikes me as also the model for discipleship once you've once you figure out what once you see the signs of grace in your life and you and you somehow pick up on the possibilities that grace offers you mm-hmm then it becomes easy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, is there suffering? Of course. But you still know how to stay on the track. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like an Aristotelian virtue. you got to start with habits, and they have to become second nature, and then they become virtues. Right? Yeah. So to me, it's all applicative all the time. Yeah. It's a great metaphor. Because, like, David Tracy will talk about being in the zone and, and giving yourself mm-hmm. over. And it's, for him, it's really this language of surrender and risk. Yeah. Which is, which is absolutely what you're talking about with discipleship, right? Like, that... Like you, you are giving over of yourself and putting yourself at risk to do so. And, and lately, I've, been th- I've, really been, I've given a couple papers on this, too, where I, I think the best way to think about the Christian life is to think about it as, as musical, in mm-hmm. that sense, right? So, yeah, this is your CTSA paper last yeah, year. Yeah, last year, where there's this underlying kind of harmonic framework mm-hmm. that really does kind of stay in the background or stays below. So let's say in Baroque terms, it's, a, it's the figured bass or the ground bass, mm-hmm. but that bass... The, 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 the structure of the bass line unfolds over time. So a next note is influenced not just by the prior note, but also by the subsequent one. Mm-hmm. But it could also go off in a different direction and surprise you. Yeah. Right? But as my example in that CTSA talk was, Bach-Goldberg variations, where you've got this fundamental harmonic structure, but the variations are not 30 variations on a melody, or one melody. They're 30 different melodies mm-hmm. built in the same harmonic framework. Mm-hmm. That to me is the Christian life, mm-hmm. and exemplifies something I was told you know, years ago when studying spirituality. There's only one Christian spirituality; it's following Jesus. But there are an infinite number of spiritualities, mm-hmm. right? So we need a theological way to articulate what that is, how that happens, and how to make the way ahead clear for our audiences, those who listen to us, yeah. or those we may preach to, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that the applicative moment, but also its wonderful dynamic unfolding, is crucial. Okay. And that it's always embodied. Yes. Which means you've got to take, you, I tell my students, you don't become holy in spite of your life, you become holy because of your sure. life. Sure. And we can say sure. Yeah, yeah. I, but uh, but if, you're, if, if somehow you think of Christianity as, as, as apart from the world, as, you know, if, once you do the culture war thing. Yeah. Or as monolithic, right? I mean, yeah. that's the other risk, right? Yeah, I think. And I, you've got to trust the incarnation. Mm-hmm. You really do. Yeah. Okay, and so yeah, and this, so a way of thinking about that is you have uh, the sort of particularity and universality, right? Yeah, which is what you have in the incarnation. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, actually a topic that Levin, my friend Levin Buva from uh, KU Leuven and I have worked on a little bit 
of theology of particular. The particularity matters. Yeah. Know? We tend to shoot for the universal first. Right. But we're all on the ground in a someplace as a someone. Right. In a certain community that's configured a certain way. And all that's got to be taken seriously, which to my mind, I hope this isn't too big of a jump, means that theology always has to be interdisciplinary no matter what. Right. Right? So you've got to take culture into consideration. Mm-hmm. You've got to go to the movies. You've got to listen to music. <laughs> You gotta, I mean, God forgive me, you gotta watch TV. You yeah. gotta watch the, 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 the craziest. I feel like you're justifying me in my Netflix video. <laughs> yeah, <so>. right. Well, <laughs> it's. Chris Hedges, I don't know if you, you know Mm-mm. the work of, of the cultural critic Chris Hedges. He has a book called The Empire of Illusion, where he says, look, he says, what are. What, what does. He doesn't know about, about commodified consumer capitalism. He talks about celebrity capitalism. Mm. Where he says, look, what are people promised on TV? They're shown gated communities. Like on reality shows, yeah. you know the Kardashians and all that. They're shown gated communities that they're that they're to aspire to, but they will always be shut out of. Mm-hmm. So desire that is always frustrated, mm-hmm. and that's capitalism. Yeah, and I have to admit that that argument has had a huge influence on the way I understand embodiment and what discipleship then should be like as a way of trying to overturn yeah overturn that. But that means you've got to study it. Yeah, and you've got to it's. It's the platonic Socrates saying you've got to make the weaker argument the stronger. You've got to mm-hmm. get so far inside it. I think sometimes theologians are afraid to. I mean, we talk about commodification all the time. Right. But at some point, you really have to get inside and see what, what are the mechanics of late capitalist consumerism? Mm-hmm. What are the mechanics of celebrity culture? What are the mechanics of advertising? Because in a I'd say in a, in a post-postmodern setting where we are aesthetically saturated, where we're saturated with images, all those kinds of images and the desires that they raise for us have to be studied because that's where our discipleship takes place. Yeah. Right, in that context. Yeah. Yeah, it, sh- it shapes the culture. And the, I mean, the thing about, you said, when you're talking about desire being frustrated, and what strikes me in that is it requires desire to be frustrated. Right, like it's not just the yeah. that it is, but it must mm-hmm. be in order for that kind of system to continue, right? Because the to have celebrities, it must be elite, it must be limited, it must burn brightly, but typically briefly. And if you if it's something that can be satisfied, it doesn't work. That's it doesn't right. Sell. That's right. So it's this perpetual. You know, I'm not Derridian by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but you know, Derrida's point about you know this constant deferment mm-hmm. that kind of keeps things going all the time. Well, in this sense, it keeps them going. I guess in a to say it in a negative way is is actually too bland. But see, there, there's also a Christian version of this. I mean, my example of is believe it or not, Anselm, because mm. when you read the, the 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 prelude or the the, the preface to the Proslogion. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, I, I, I go away by yourself, little man, and, and contemplate. And one of the things you find out, I'm looking for God, but I can't find God. Mm-hmm. Right? And as you read through there, you think, then, then if I can't find God, if God is this complete mystery and I'm so off track, well, how will I ever find God? I love telling, especially graduate students who think they've, you know, they've read the Proslogon, meaning they've read the proof, they've read the ontological <laughs> argument, but they never see what, what the argument's based on. It really is based on this desire, mm-hmm. this desire for God, which for Anselm is innate. So the last thing that you would think would lead you to God would be something so subjective, I, mm-hmm. and let's use really modern terminology here, I mean, in a sense of philosophical modernity, something so 
the last thing you would trust that's so relativistic mm-hmm. as desire. Yeah. Right? I so, mean, it seems like for, for a lot of students or for a lot of Christians, like, that's almost a dirty word, right? Mm-hmm. That's right, because, because either they've had the, the kind of quasi-Jansenist training mm-hmm. I had, you know, in grade <laughs> school, right? The body's bad, the world is bad, you know, all that stuff. Or they've, they, they, come out of, they come out of a late 80s and throughout the 90s cultural studies where you do see economies of desire, mm-hmm. but you also see how pernicious some of them can mm-hmm. be, right? So it's hard to trust. It's hard to know how to discern then which ones you can trust. Yeah. I think there's a whole, uh, our wonderfully rich and deep Christian history of discipleship can give us some clues as to how to discern which how to pursue the process of fulfilling desire without, yeah. you know, without, without you know, losing yourself down the hole. Yeah. Did you watch the show Mad Men? Uh, the whole thing. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the, like the, the, the underlying theme of the construction of desire is yeah. just riddled in that show and gives voice to this way in which ad- advertising, I mean, obviously it has a goal of trying to sell and everything, but it does so well. Like, there's that line where, where Don Draper says, like, love is something we made up to sell pantyhose. That's right? right. That's right. And, of course, that's not true. But there's a way which is kind of true. Like, yeah, it's the yeah. management of desire and yeah. the channeling of desire according to other people's desires. Right? Yeah. Or there's an article I always teach my student. I always teach in an introductory class. It's getting old now, but it still works. It's Richard Carney's Ethics in the Postmodern Imagination, 1989. Thought the journal Thought that used to come out for him doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. And it's a it's a digest of an argument that he makes in the Wake of Imagination, where he says, "Look, he says, you know." What are we talking about postmodern culture? Image is reality, right? Mm-hmm. And my example for students is watch football on Sunday. I'm a baseball and hockey guy. I mean, football bores me, but, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll use that. I'll use that, right? So, you know, what's really real about what they're watching? And, you know, and they're, they're stunned. Stunned, I tell you. Mm-hmm. When I tell them that what they've seen on the screen, there's no one-to-one correspondence between what they see on the screen and what's happening on the field mm-hmm. because nobody – no one person's experience can be up in the booth, then zip down on the field for the interview, then be up in the 700 level, then watch an ad. Mm-hmm. You know, that's nobody's experience. So, the re- so what's on the screen is the reality. So that means that that great book by Jean Baudrillard, The Gulf mm-hmm. War Did Not Occur, mm-hmm. where he makes the argument, it's the, Gulf War, the first Gulf War, happened on TV. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody buys that argument. Everybody thought Baudrillard was crazy. But in a sense, he's really right, because mm-hmm. that's the way we knew it. Mm-hmm. What was real for us was what you see on the screen. Mm-hmm. So once you, tell, once you use that as the example of image as reality, I, I just watch students have these epiphanies across mm-hmm. the classroom. And then our question then is, okay, what then, how do you break that, para- and, and Carney says, this is paralysis, right? Yeah. Because, you know, uh, your reality then becomes uh, completely conditioned by the purveyors of those images, mm-hmm. right? So in the late 80s, it was, you know, multinational capitalism, right? What is it today? It's, it's, it's media industry, right? Yeah. You know, it's a bunch of twenty-year-old guys, in, you know, out in L.A., you know, right, you know, sitting in the writers' room. But it, but right? it, it's more than that now, too. In, in, the, in the sense that, I mean, so much of this mediation by screen is is the the self-construction online, right? Right. right. Like they've become their own purveyors. Right. This is the right. argument that Vince Miller makes about yeah. you know self-selecting communities that can wind up kind of, kind of constructing their own. He doesn't say mythologies, but mm-hmm. like, I, you know, the, the, whatever keeps the community going, right? Yeah. So my, my way of, of trying to get at this is to say, okay, I, I'm sorry, and uh, Carney's way of saying this is, okay, what breaks that kind of para- that, that paralyzing circle? He talks about the poetic imagination, mm-hmm. the ability to think otherwise, right? So if the parables are anything, 
they are a way of teaching us how to think otherwise about our relationship to God, our relationship to others, our relationship to the world, mm-hmm. right? So those surprising parables were, you know, the prodigal son parable, I mean, for God's sakes, the, the family is dysfunctional, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So how could a dysfunctional family ever be a, a clue to what the kingdom of God is, and yet you see it work out yeah. in the parable. Yeah. When the father runs out to meet, the father who's been waiting for the son runs out to meet him, you know? Yeah. Right? So what I've tried to show students is that whatever this image-reality cycle is, that there, there's a deeply Christian way of trying to think otherwise about that that breaks the cycle. Mm-hmm. But once again, it's got to be applicative. You've got to take those kingdom values, which really are surprising, and live them out. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, par- the parables for me become this real school of discipleship. And if you link that then with, if you link that with a kind of philosophical analysis of embodiment mm-hmm. and history and experience, for me, all those pieces kind of come together. Yeah. And that's kind of what makes at least the theology the way I practice it work. Yeah. Right. Do you do you find your students receptive to that? I mean, I, I think in, the reason I ask is I taught this class this last semester on Christian approaches to war and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so I was talking about, you know, historically, critically, what does turn the other cheek really mean? What does walk another mile really mean? What like what's the cultural background with this? And there is this sort of moment of insight with the students where they're like, aha, it's not just passivity or, or something along those lines, which they're sort of used to. But in, in reality, they have these just very sanitized, saccharine understandings of the parables, of Scripture more broadly. I think also when, when students read Noah, right? When they read Genesis 6 through 9, and for the first time it occurs to them, oh, all those other people died, right? Like, <laughs> there's mass death going on yeah. in the midst of this, and, or, or God hardening Pharaoh's heart, or all these sorts of things. Right. There's, this, there's this moment where... I've heard this story, and it's great how great God is in all of these stories, and, and they start to recognize that what they knew they didn't know, right? Yeah, it's one of those John Stewart boom moments, Yeah, you know? uh, Yeah, let, let's, let's really read the story this time, yeah. right? Or, you know, and the standard way to, at least the standard way in, like, say, humanities classes to do this is to read Job, right? Everybody mm-hmm. knows. But then when you, when you see that there's a, there's a, uh, a, oh, what's it called? It's the... Um, it's the normal Jewish ethic there. You know, good people get rewarded, bad people mm-hmm. get punished. It doesn't work here, mm-hmm. right? And once you see that there's really no answer to that problem except the theophany, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, you, you, you know, students begin to realize, no, they can't think their way out of these kind yeah. of difficult problems, right? Yeah. Or there is mass death, yeah. you know, in the flood story, right? Yeah. Or, yeah, Elijah is on the run. Yeah. Because be, be, Elijah is on the run. And also, prior to that, he made the wrong, not the wrong, he made an inadequate, he had an inadequate understanding of God as just pure power. Mm-hmm. And he has to find out while he's on the run that God's also the whispering wind. Mm-hmm. Or as the Hebrew says, God is a whispering silence. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's your oxymoron right there, right? <laughs> and I, so I, I would agree with you that getting, stu- that getting students to, to, to see those moments, mm-hmm. are, they're those poetic, imaginative moments where they begin to think otherwise. So religion really does become either either Judaism or Christianity or any other the religious traditions, really becomes a real life life or death issue rather than just you know what we're constantly told is just some exotic bird you know, yeah. that we bring in and laugh at every once in a while on TV. Yeah, you know, yeah. Let's get those nuns in full habits in again. Show how naive they are. <laughs> you know, great. <laughs> oh, perfect. You know? <laughs> 
Yeah, a lot of, I mean, mostly I teach, you know, the, the gen ed required classes. Right. Most of the students, they, they don't really want to be there. And I have this constant balance, or I, I try to thread this needle where I need to make the class engaging, entertaining, I need to draw them in, but I need to not, I don't want it to turn into a show. I, don't want, I certainly don't want them to be an audience. I want them to be participants and trying to get them engaged in a topic which, I mean, a lot of my students aren't, Christian or religious in any particular sense, and so it just feels onerous to try to look at it. One of the things you mentioned earlier that struck me okay, with this is... Before you go off please, on top yeah. of that, can I disagree with you just slightly? Sure, sure, yeah. I think teaching, I think teaching theology and clarity is like stand-up. It's like stand-up comedy. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Because you, you, do have to, you do have to grab them. You have yeah, to be yeah. entertaining. But it's also participatory, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Sense. But there's also got to be a thread. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, when Louis C.K. gets done, mm-hmm. you've gone somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Right? What I, I guess what I worry about is I, like, in, in the sense that I don't want it to be a show, is I, I, I do want them right. to, to get something from right. it, right? I know what like, you mean, though, yeah. Um, it's not pure entertainment. Yeah, it's not exactly, this, yes. Hey, 50 minutes, it yeah. went by real fast. Yeah, yeah. it's not the Kardashians. It, That's right. Yeah. But like, that engagement, I right. think, is, uh, you know, the surprising, the surprising along with... The surprising, the shocking, the comforting—I mm-hmm. mean, to me, that's that, there's that's almost a stand-up. Yeah. You know, the best stand-up routines do that. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or let's say, let me put it in, in, in a musical term. In musical terms, the best—like I'm thinking of the Bach Passions, right? And it's just this roller. If you listen closely, it's this roller coaster of emotions, mm-hmm. you know. And you have five things going on at once, where you've got you've got a chorus singing something, and then you've got a, a Lutheran hymn or chorale being sung over top of that, plus you've got this churning in the bass and, mm. and, and, and these, 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 these dissonant you know, oboes playing. You know? So you can have a whole bunch of things. It's, it's, it's polyphonic in the best sense. You, can you do that in the classroom all the time? Of course not. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, how many dead spots? Can you? But I think that's what one needs to aim for. I yeah. think that's what preaching also needs to aim for. Mm-hmm. I think that's also what any kind of pastoral activity always aims for. So let's say, uh, I don't mean to wander off the topic Not here, but, but in the end, I think this is where it's all got to land. Yeah. So in, the, in my parish in Philadelphia, the, the pastor, who is a couple classes behind me in the seminary, every time I, 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 we talk, my wife and I talk with him, he's either like just coming in from the hospice where he's been ministering, sure? or just coming in from the hospital, or just coming in from you know, counseling a couple, or just coming in from doing RCIA with somebody. And t- to me, that's that. That in the end is what is. I mean, there, there's the church, there's the ecclesial applicative moment, and if we're not bringing people closer to Christ, and somehow performing what a life of discipleship is for them, then everything we're doing, I think, is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the classroom situation. Yeah. Can we at least give students a kind of a glimmer of mm-hmm. what that might look like? When once you do your biblical passages, by the end of the course, can you really get to that applicative moment mm-hmm. or the ethical moment? Right. Or in you know when you're in a war and peace class, you know let's let's not let, let's not do the cliched stuff. Let's really think through you know what what does drone technology yeah. do and how does it upset our our ethical canons? Yeah, you know, things like that. I had several students do their research paper on drones, and I had people, I had students just realizing well one they hadn't really thought about these things before, mm-hmm. but two what what they had assumed was the case was not necessarily the case. And uh, that getting to that moment of insight made, made a very tough semester worthwhile, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. You need those epiphanies. You really yeah. do. But sometimes they're tough. 
Yeah. To get to. Yeah. And you need, I, I mean, you need at least a couple. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that you mentioned I wanted to go back to was the, the interdisciplinary character of theology. Mm-hmm. And one thing I've talked to a lot of other professors about this is that there's a way that theology seems to benefit from or encourage generalism and interdisciplinary work more than a lot of other fields. And not, not in some way that theology is you know, just better because of that, but because what we're dealing with is, is all-encompassing in terms of the, the human experience and the spiritual life and the, the transcendent quality of that. And for a lot of students, getting in the history and the economics and the culture and everything else becomes these sort of eye-opening, illuminating moments for them. But I'm always careful, I'm not careful, I'm always worried that we become sociologists. Sure. I, I never want that to happen. Or we become or psychologists. Or, yeah, right. absolutely, right. right. In fact, one of my, can I make a complaint here? Please. I, I mean, a lot, a lot of theology I've, I've re- that I've been reading in the last decade or so is basically political theory. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to read that. You know, I just don't, that, that to me, I mean, it's easy to take a cue from, uh, from you know, Augustine's City of God and then try to work up, you know, a, a, political, a political theology of the city or the state or whatever and, and become more, more political theory than anything else, yeah. right? And I, I think that's one of the things that's made, that's made me feel that theology has gotten a bit more boring lately. <laughs> like, I, I, I tell people half is a joke, but half seriously, I'd rather be reading art history mm. lately, you know, or... or or something in music, or something about, or watching Mad Men, you know, yeah. or something like that, you know, rather than, you know, churning through one more, one more application of Augustine to our political mm-hmm. culture, or one more contribution, one more contribution to a Christ versus culture mm-hmm. framework. Yeah, is it is it the topic area in general that you're not interested in, or is it that? That it's not sufficiently theological to be valuable. Or? Well, remember, it's fun about theologians. Yeah. We, we, we're interested in everything, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's right? what makes our, our, our field but so. Everyone has some preferences. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. But one of my complaints, no, not a complaint, it's just a, it, another epiphany, right? We have to, as fun about theologians, we have to be interested in everything, yeah. right? And I say, especially those of us, and now my prejudices are really going to show, <laughs> those of us with a philosophical background, I think, have a way of kind of being able to cope with all that stuff mm-hmm. a little more easily. Mm. Right, because we've been taught to think, more, think capaciously and in terms of arguments, you know, mm-hmm. and, and being able to kind of diagnose where certain arguments are going, or where certain the presuppositions behind certain frameworks other people may not see. Right, so not sufficiently theological, I, I think. Okay. I would say yes. You know, if I would have a fight on my hands with some other people, sure, think, sure, who would say no. My my work really yeah. is theological. Let me show you how. Right. I mean, another way of of getting at the same question is. You know, I find a lot. Uh, I find a lot when I try to basically justify theology, whether it's to administration or to students who are taking the course. That a lot of what, a lot of the way I sell it is because let's be honest, most of my students are not going to become theologians right, in the right. any official capacity. Is you're learning research skills, you're learning argument skills, you're learning logic, you're learning how to write well, right? So you're learning all these skills, right? And skills, 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 and it's great. And a lot of the learning objectives that schools are pushing are, are skill-based objectives. Mm-hmm. And this is wonderful, but it also risks suggesting that the content of what we're doing doesn't matter. Yeah. What matters is you're getting good at doing this thing, and once you do this thing, you can go do this in whatever other way you want. Transferable skills. It's yeah. just great, you know, but it's all, it's all in a sense, it's all able to be commodified in this wonderful package, right? Mm-hmm. 
and what then yeah. becomes... Yeah, and so you can say, like, this was my minor in college, yeah. right? And so... It taught me to think critically. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's and why, that's why you want to That's why give me a me. job in, my, in your office. That's right. right. But that transcending intentionality mm-hmm. that we're trying to articulate in our theological work, right? That, that everything comes from God. It's Thomas in the first question, you know? Mm-hmm. What's... What, what what is what's theology about? You know, well, theology acknowledges the fact that that everything's rooted in God and everything goes back to God, mm-hmm. right? Now, we certainly can't say that in a medieval, in a scholastic way, mm-hmm. but we can talk about that, and we and we can talk about the incarnation. Grace is everywhere, all the time. Mm-hmm. We can try to articulate that in a way that that then prevents us from just becoming merely sociologists or merely psychologists or mm-hmm. merely um, political theorists. Sure. And that's what I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm adamant. This is one of the lessons that Frank Fiorenza uh, teaches. I mean, he, has, he even says this in his, that the opening chapter to the foundation, to the uh, Systematic Theology sure. volume, where where he says, you know, fundamental theology is theology, and we have to be able to account for it as theology this mm-hmm. way, and not just as, you know, philosophy, religion, or you know, some some prelude to theology. Mm-hmm. Right? So, it's, so it's not just philosophical apologetics, sure, right? And I'm really conscious of that. No matter what class I teach, whether it's you know, intro to 18 year olds, or you know, RMA students, right? And it seems to me that the best students catch that early and can somehow begin to articulate for themselves that that transcendental orientation mm-hmm. you know or based on my on my once again my phenomenological background that intentionality but in, but that that kind of intentionality of a of a holistic consciousness now Husserl talks about the intentionality of consciousness but it's an intellectualist argument when you add Merleau-Ponty to the mix and, and Heidegger and being a time all of a sudden it's, it's the whole it's everything it's every experience winds up having this intentional thrust that not only constitutes what we mean by meaning, but actually lands somewhere as a fulfilled intention. And the fulfilled intention of discipleship is, is, is theosis, mm-hmm. right? And if I can, and can, can you tell 18-year-olds that, right, you know, the first day? Of course not, mm-hmm. right? But at some point, to talk about the interpenetration of grace in everyday life, you become holy because of your life, not in spite of it. If, if that if that lesson gets learned somehow and is taken on as a virtue, then mm-hmm. I think we've succeeded do you, to some degree. Do you have a sense for how or an idea for how... So we'll often talk about the there's kind of a, a separation or a division or a, 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 even a contrast between theology and spirituality, right? That these sometimes get, get artificially separated out. Yeah, I think that's deadly. Yeah. Yeah, but they are, but they are separate. They're distinct, in, 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 right? They're distinct they're, disciplines, right. right? But without... Without some interpenetration of prayer and 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 the intellectual life, I, I think we, we, we give up our we give up our right to be theologians almost. Yeah. I think. I mean, I, I know that sounds extreme, but if my theological work doesn't lead me to, I mean, even if the prayer is a prayer of desolation, you know, yeah. I mean, doesn't lead me to to a, a deeper to a deeper understanding of prayer. To, I'm sorry, to a deeper experience of prayer and a deeper vision as to where grace is operative in the world mm-hmm. then I think I, I'm not I'm not being a good theologian yeah. you know, I, I just really think that matters mm-hmm. you know I, I, so it's not just I mean there are you and I know 
theologians who somehow have been trained to practice theology as a blood sport. Yeah. You know, it's all just debate and it's mm-hmm. some big intellectual puzzle. And I'm really bad at that, at those kinds of <laughs> debates. I hate them and I, I just, I, I run away from them because mm-hmm. that's not why I'm in it. Yeah. I'm in this because I want to be Bartimaeus. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. want to walk on the way. And yeah. that's what matters to me. And the way that's been, that I've been called to do this is as a theologian. I mean, it really is a vocation. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, yeah, I have a philosophical background. Yeah, I can do music. Yeah, I know, I know the visual arts. But unless there's the discipleship piece, then I lose the thread. Yeah. And this is, and this is part of your way of being a disciple. Yeah. 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 And exactly the way you said it, it's a way of being mm-hmm. a disciple because mm-hmm. it's also a way of being. Yeah. So, so one question I would have, <clears throat> and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up, is... I mean, you've been the editor of Horizons for 10 years. You've, you've been teaching for 20-plus years at Villanova, 30. 30 years at Villanova. Yeah. What, what is advice that you would have for younger theologians, up-and-coming theologians, graduate students who are kind of getting out? What are you know, one or two or three things that you would say newer theologians need to do or be aware of or think about? In the beginning of your career, you've got to somehow, at some, uh, to some degree, be a generalist. You've got to know enough Bible. You've got, let's say for systematic theologians, mm-hmm. you've got to know enough ethics. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able, in the classroom, since you're going to be thrown into the classroom, I mean, you're thrown right into the deep end, teach an intro, mm-hmm. which means you can't simply just teach your graduate specialty. You can't simply teach your dissertation. But you've also got, you, you've, you've got, to, you've got to somehow know and feel the broader spread of the history of not just Christian theology, the history of Christianity and Christian practice, mm-hmm. right? That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is, I guess this is a teaching thing. See, I'm, 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 very, I'm very conversational when I teach. So I think a suggestion I'd make is, is it, I don't know how to suggest people to be relaxed. I mean, once you say, be relaxed, you know, they don't set everybody tenses up, right? Don't think of an elephant. Yeah. My, my colleague, Jim McCarraher's line is, be spontaneous. Of course, you can't at that point, right? But I think one thing I would, one thing I would suggest is to feel to feel the material that you're doing deeply, mm-hmm. but that puts you at an ease enough to be able to communicate it in a way that's not detached from everyday life. Mm-hmm. Right? I guess I would also say that the, those, the skills outside, the, the intellectual skills or abilities outside of theology that people have should really be enhanced for the, all those interdisciplinary reasons mm-hmm. we, discussed, we discussed earlier and not be afraid to bring them into the classroom. Mm-hmm. Right? So... For years, I didn't teach any music in the classroom because I thought, oh, God, if they reject this, they're going to reject <laughs> me personally, you know? And, and it turns out that that's not true. I actually learned, I learned how, to, how to teach music in the classroom by listening to my youngest brother who was in art school at that point. Mm-hmm. I said, how do they teach art? And, and, and he explained it to me, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what an art history class is like. So I thought, yeah, I can, I can add that to my repertoire. Sure. Right? So I think the more the more one can add to one's repertoire without losing sight of the theological goal mm-hmm. is crucial. But then I will say with that theological goal, find that thread that ties all the pieces of sure. the work together. Sure. And it's hard to do. It took me a while to find my voice when I was mm-hmm. writing. I, I, I didn't have a theological voice, I think, for the first five or six years of my post-PhD huh. career. You, you wind up doing like reportage or quoting people constantly. Yeah. And then you have that little original nugget at the end. And I always wanted that original piece to become bigger and bigger and bigger yeah and at some point it just it, yeah if you keep pushing it happens yeah it really does yeah but i also think a, a, a situation like this at the cts 
where you, you have these wonderful conversations with people, the kind of conversations we had in grad school mm -hmm. that we really wish the university would still be. Right, 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 right. They're the kinds of things that encourage one's, it can never be a completely original take. I mean, that's a mm -hmm. 19th century definition of genius, right? And we don't start with a tabula rasa, right? Mm -hmm. But based on our, based on, on, the, on the, the configuration of, of our experience in our historically located situation and our culturally saturated situation, we do have a unique contribution to make to that ongoing theological conversation. So, yeah, there's only one spirituality that we would all participate in, but in the infinite spiritualities, everybody's got a path to discipleship. Everybody's got a path to theosis. Work to find out what that is. What is your particular angle in? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. It's, it, I would say, from what I've seen lately, the people who've been working in ethics have been finding that a lot more easily mm -hmm. than the people working, let's say, in philosophical theology. Where you know imitating the continental style just just seems, seems to have subsumed everybody, yeah. or uh, I, I I would just maybe leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. So as we wrap up, we have five sort of less serious questions to, to to get to. So first of all, are you team coffee or team tea? Coffee. Okay. Like black all day long. Oh well, no, let me take that back because I I make iced tea from scratch. Yeah. And I could take that intravenously. You know, so I wouldn't have to leave my room. I wouldn't have to get up from the computer. But in the morning, it's got to be coffee with mm -hmm. cream in it, no sugar. All right. My wife takes it black, and I don't understand how she does it. But I, that's I, what makes her a saint, I think. <laughs> okay. My wife, she roasts her own coffee beans. She has several different fancy grinders. I'm very impressed. It's a, it's, I mean, it's a whole, it's a, it is an art in the kitchen, yeah. the, like the, the, the devices and everything else, but. Question two. Can, can I add a, can yeah. I add a footnote? My, my wife is a phenomenal cook. Mm -hmm. You know, I can barely boil hot dogs. You know, <laughs> so I'm just like I'm, I'm I'm astounded and amazed and always in awe of what people can do in the kitchen. Yeah. 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 Uh, question two. I mentioned Mad Men earlier, but what is a favorite TV show you're currently watching or recently watched? Elementary. Really? I love Elementary. I haven't seen that one. I watched the the BBC Sherlock. Right. But. Yeah. Which we, which my wife and I have done too. But Johnny Lee Miller is just this phenomenal actor, right? <laughs> so that's when, that's when we both watch a lot of... Yeah, let me stop there. Yeah. He did this... I hated TV for years, and I didn't watch it. And all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden like in the middle of my career, I said, oh, i got to take a break from marking papers. Let me sit down. So you start watching what's on a 10 mm -hmm. before you go to bed at night, right? And so for, for a, a scripted show, I would say elementary. Okay. Right. For uh, for anything else, it's 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 watching the Daily Show. I mean, <laughs> I mean the the kind of political the, the only kind of political critique you can do in this country anymore, it seems to me, is parody. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. And, it, and it, the parody is vibrant. Yeah, and I feel bad that he's leaving the show. Yeah, you know. So. Yeah, we'll see. The Trevor Noah guy. I don't know much about him, but we'll. We'll see. I yeah. mean, watch the trailer. There's a trailer of him sitting oh, in, in John Stewart's chair that they, they put up, and he gets caught. <laughs> it's great. It only lasts two minutes. It's great. I'll check that out. Number three, what is your, and I, I'm hoping you have a, a strong feeling about this, what is your favorite or, or least favorite liturgical song? You can go either way. I'm going to sound like I'm 180 years old. My favorite liturgical song is Holy God, We Praise Thy Name. All right. And one of the reasons is when it starts up, everybody can sing it. Mm -hmm. Everybody sings it. My least favorite is a genre, and that's 
those songs which change key and meter every couple bars. <laughs> it drives me insane. Yeah. You know, since I'm a Baroque guy, that means I'm a classical harmony guy. Yeah, yeah. So once you move from from a major key to a minor to a, to a, a, a distant minor key in the next bar, yeah. You know, or I'm going out. four four to six four. It makes it just hard to yeah. re- hard to sing, right? Like yeah. it's hard to follow along. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, of what or whom do you think you could be the patron saint? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> of of jeez, um, of, of of dissolute dark beer drinking theological hermeneutes. All right. How's that? Yeah. There might be a bigger group than you realize. <laughs> yeah, well, let's go. Let's all go. To, I, I know. I know where to go in Philadelphia. Let's let's just go out. Let's go to monks. All right. All right. All right. Uh, last question: What had, had things gone differently? What do you think is a career or profession you either would have attempted or that you might have liked to? Right. Like if you. This is such a great question because I couldn't think of another career. Yeah. Uh, I, I I was. This is providence that I'm here. Hmm. Seriously. You know, I, I had thought of teaching, you know, really, but, and, and, you know, well, what are you going to teach? I told you, I, you know, when I was a freshman in college, I was going to teach English in mm-hmm. France, you know, but that's a kind of pipe dream, you know. Sure. I just feel like I was destined, I, I hate destiny language, so it's providential that I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. It's a vocation. I was chosen to do this. Oh, good. Well, I was, I, I'm sorry, I was given the opportunity to do this, and I was asked to pick up those possibilities and actualize them. Yeah. And I hope that when I come to the end of my career, but also at, to the end of my life that I will have seemed to have actualized more possibilities than I would have let go. Mm-hmm. Awesome. How's that? Well, yes, great. Well, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. No, thanks. Me, thanks. So. These were great questions. This yeah. is a great conversation. I really thanks. appreciate it. No, thanks for, thanks for asking. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.